Turn to Numbers chapter 35. What my intention is, the last sermon in the book of Numbers for a while. Numbers chapter 35, starting in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. And when he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge <coughs> excuse me, between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession." And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death 
but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've spoken to us in your word. We ask that you would speak now in its preaching for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the the interesting parts of my job, I I have a really interesting job. You probably don't uh, think of it that way. I do have the most interesting job in the world um, because I get to study the Bible all the time, and that's always interesting. And then I get to be in your, involved in your lives, and that's always interesting too, because you're all really interesting people. One of the, the kind of secondary elements of the job that's so interesting that you may not think about uh, is that I get to spend a significant portion of my life living in the beliefs of other people. I get to interact with what other people think and with what other people feel and kind of how they think about the world. And one of those categories of places that I get to interact is where our beliefs are well-intended but ill-informed. Well-intended but ill-informed. That's my gentle way of saying ignorant. That's what I'm gently trying to address, but it's one of those areas where we uh, oftentimes spend, and it's amazing how many beliefs people hold, and, and interestingly, how, how emotively they hold those beliefs when they're just wonderfully ignorant. They're just wrong. Like one of those is the, the idea that when people die, they turn into angels. Oh, they turn into angels. It's so emotionally tender, isn't it? It's just wrong. (laughs) So wrong. So terribly, terribly wrong. Or again, as we've talked about in the past, that angels would be these little naked cherubs, these adorable little babies that fly around, flitter around with their pleasant little wings. I'm like, no, they're creatures of terror and fire. Or the idea that uh, in in the life to come that we all live in heaven. Wrong. We live in the new earth. That's why there's a new creation. God lives in heaven. That's where he is. And we get to interact with him, certainly, but that's what the new earth is for. It's where we live. Or, how about this one? This is one you hear sometimes, that that the saints who have gone before, that their entire job is just to, to watch you and that your dear, you know, great Aunt Matilda, who loved you so much and that loved Jesus, is just sitting in heaven with nothing else to do but watch your miserable life down here. (laughs) Believe it or not, great Aunt Matilda is still human. She's only able to see one thing at a time. She's not omnipresent nor omniscient. She doesn't know all things and can't see all things. I suspect she's probably informed by the angels, but certainly doesn't have the ability to watch you 
You see, all of these beliefs or those beliefs in that category that they're, they're well-intended. There's usually a good idea behind them. They're just terribly wrong because they're not informed by the Bible. They're informed by our imagination and not informed by the Bible. And Numbers chapter 35, I think, actually gets, at least starting point-wise, at a number one of, another one of those, where you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, I mean, all sins being equal. Or sometimes, really, we don't say it, but we kind of infer it in the back of our minds. It shapes how we think that, to think that all sins are equal, that all bad things are equal. So let's start with that question. Are all sins actually equal? Well, you have to define that a little bit, I guess. Are all sins equally effective at sending you to hell? Yes, absolutely, right? Absolutely. It doesn't matter if it's what we would call a big sin or what we would call a small sin. Any sin sends you to hell. That's why we can say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why we can say things like the wages of sin or death. It doesn't matter. All people who have done any sin equally have hell on the horizon apart from the Lord Jesus. But if we were going to even maybe go a little further and say, well, in God's eyes, are all sins the same? Not from my perspective, but from from God's perspective, are all sins the same? Are all sins equal, in fact? And, you know, realistically, some of us would kind of default to say yes, and some of us default to say no. Some of us, it's because we didn't learn our catechisms when we were younger, because it would have saved us a little bit of a, a challenge. Westminster Shorter Catechism are all transgressions of the law equally heinous. This is question and answer 83. Some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Are all sins the same in God's eyes? No. No, they're not. The Catechism, I think, helpfully kind of identifies there's two reasons. One is because some sins, by their very nature, are more heinous than others. They're more awful than others. Now, all will send you to hell. Apart from Christ, any of them will send you to hell. But some, by their very nature, or by the aggravation, by the the compounding of the problem, how it affects others, are worse than others. And this is where we kind of leave the realm of the well-intended ignorance and try to kind of enter into biblical information. Uh, Numbers chapter 35, I, I think, explains this very clearly. At least it shows us one kind of case example of it. As Numbers 35 is working out the difference between murder and manslaughter. Well, those are the terms that we in America would put on them today. The difference between premeditated murder, first degree, or manslaughter. Because the the kind of background conversation that would have to take place here, we're going to kind of, again, back up a little bit before we fully work into the text, is that humans are really important to God. 
All humans are really important to God. You are important to God. I am important to God. Every human is important to God. And if we were to turn back to Genesis chapter 1, we'd find out from the very beginning when he first made people, made humans, Verse 27, he explains that when God created, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So mankind is made in the image of God. Male and female, young and old, unborn and born, gifted or a little slow sick or well, terminal or not, all people are made in the image of God. It's in fact actually one of the reasons why we have the second commandment where we're not, we're commanded not to make any images of God. It's because he's already done that. We don't have to make a graven image. We don't have to try to carve something to show what God looks like. He's already done that. He's given us billions of examples of what he looks like. We have a whole bunch of them in the room today. Some short, some not. Some dark-haired, some not. Some no-haired. Right? Some growing hair down here, some maybe not. Some maybe they should. All looking a little bit different, but really not that different because we're made in the image of God. And that image, it works both in the unseen parts of who we are, our personality, our, our spirituality, the fact that we have a soul, but even down to our physicality, that our bodies in some way, some fashion, some reality, reflect who God is. And as a result of that, people are incredibly important to God. It's why we're not animals. I know that every modern science textbook today says people are just animals. We're not. We're something completely different than the rest of the created order. We're something completely unique and completely other. The plants made to be plants, the fungus made to be fungus, fungi, the animals made to be animals, but mankind, men and women, boys and girls, made to showcase his image. So that, in fact, interestingly, in very creation, the plants are given for food, and just after the flood, the animals given for food. But men and women, boys and girls, being set aside as different and unique. As the objects of God's love. As being especially important to him. In fact, actually, people are so important to him. Leviticus 24 and Exodus 21 both lay out for us that his principle was that if anything killed a human, that thing had to die. God's image is so special. God's image is so real and so important. The result of this, people are so important that they get a unique treatment all within the entirety of creation. He tells us, go kill plants and eat them. He tells us, go kill animals and eat them. But if a person dies, whatever killed them, they had to die within Israel's law system. That's our clarification within Israel's law system. So if, a, if a, an animal gored a human and killed him, the animal died. If a human killed another human, the murderer died. 
Every time a person died, unjustly, so to speak, un, you know, not natural causes caused by another person, another animal, something of the sort like that, death followed. Because people are so important to God. They have specific rules that our lives are to be preserved. Life is to be preserved. Just on a a starting point, this is certainly something that needs to impact how we think about the world today in which life is treated as being so incredibly callous. It's treated callously. It's treated as a, a flippant thing, ephemeral, that it doesn't really matter, that people don't really matter. The unborn don't matter. The aging don't matter. The infirm don't matter. And the reality is, oh, they all do. Our moment in time is just wrong. So, chapter 35 picks up with that backdrop of all people matter to God because they're in His image. Every human is important to God because every human is in His image. So, if one of them dies, whatever killed them has to die too. In fact, actually, justice must be satisfied. That's why you got this kind of refrain happening in verses 16 and following. If he kills him this way, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. Verse 17, if he killed him this way, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. Verse 18, if he struck him down this way, he's a murderer, he'll be put to death. He is to be put to death. That was how it happened within Israel's law code. In fact, actually, the way it functioned was incredibly interesting. If one of my family members was killed, or your family members was killed, you would look to find out who that kinsman redeemer is, the term that we normally think of. The way that's translated here is the avenger of blood, but it's the same person. The next of kin who would be responsible for that person, and that person's obligation was to go and kill the murderer. So if somebody either intentionally or unintentionally killed my child, because I am their father, I'm their one responsible for them, I'm the next of kin, I am the kinsman redeemer, it was my duty to go and kill whoever killed them. That was my job. If I were to fulfill the law of God, obedience on my behalf, my part, was to go kill them. I didn't get the option of saying, oh, well, let's just show some grace. I know they didn't mean it. Or they were having a bad day. That wasn't allowed within the law of God. Every time someone died, a death had to follow. And so you had to go and kill them. That was the law. That was the rule. It's kind of the the second kind of thematic backdrop as we come to the chapters, this idea that, you know, look, uh, the Lord loves people and He loves them so much that death has to be accounted for. But two, He's a just God. He's just. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. It's not like He just kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean. We'll just kind of move on and it's no big deal. It's not something that we can just kind of ignore. It's, it's not something that we can just forget about. Sin requires justice. 
Now, it's easy for us to kind of look at a passage like this and say, well, of course it would require justice. It's about murder. I don't think most of us in here in the room have been victims of murder. We haven't had family members that have been victims of murder. We haven't had this kind of define our lives. And so for most of us, we wouldn't read this and go, well, I mean, yeah, okay, I get that. But that idea of justice, it exists out there in the ether until periodically when it does invade and we are the victim of some crime and suddenly we begin to feel it a little bit more deeply. Well, I hope they get what's coming to them. This idea, this kind of visceral understanding that these people need to get what they deserve. And part of that, I think, is perhaps maybe a holy position, maybe not, but the idea certainly behind it is the the idea that God, He is just. He doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't just move on past it. He doesn't just blow on by it. And important for us to remember, again, any kind of conversation here, He doesn't ignore your sin either. While you hopefully haven't murdered anybody, hopefully, Boy, our counseling situation would change, wouldn't it? The Lord doesn't turn a blind eye to it. The interesting thing, though, I think here is that as he works it out, he he begins to explain the difference of how these sins operate. Killing a human in ancient Israel required death. Whether you meant it or not, whether it was on purpose or not, whether you hated them or not, any time a person died, the thing that did it had to die as well. So the death of a person required the death of another person. However, here, something is introduced as a remedy where God begins to explain, no, no, look, there's, sins have different, different levels of, of, of heinousness. There are different types of sins. There are different awfulness. One, we have murder. Two, we have manslaughter. Again, using modern American legal terms. Murder described in verses 16 and following. If you have an iron tool and you hit them with it, well, yeah, that's murder. You got a hammer in your hand, and you're mad at the other guy, and you hit him in the head, and he dies. That's murder. I know that's shocking. Likewise, if you have a stone hammer in your hand, and you hit him in the head, and he dies, it's murder. Again, shocking. Or if you have a giant two-by-four or baseball bat, wooden tool, and you hit him in the head, and he dies, that's murder. And if that's the case, verses 19 and following, the job of the avenger of blood, the job of the kinsman redeemer is to go and kill the murderer. That's what they had to do to obey the law of God. And interestingly, verse 20 kind of highlights why that is. is If any of this death took place because you hated the other person, because you were in the middle of an argument, if you had a long-running feud, if you were in the middle of a fist fight and you knew what you were doing, if it's an issue of rage, if it's an issue of anger, well, then he's a murderer and that person has to be put to death. However, verse 22 
There's another category introduced. Maybe it wasn't that you had a hammer in your hand and you hit them in the head and they died. Maybe you didn't have a baseball bat and you clinked them and they died. Maybe it wasn't a situation where you had a fist fight and you were trying to kill them and you did. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe they weren't lying in wait. That They were out throwing stones, throwing rocks, and accidentally threw one and hit somebody in the head and killed them. Maybe they were doing a building project and they dropped something off the top of the roof and it fell and killed the guy underneath. Maybe it was totally an accident. What happens if it's an accident? Does the avenger of blood have to go kill them then? What happens if it's an accident? And interestingly, God gives a solution. There were three cities of refuge on the west of the Jordan and three cities of refuge on the east of the Jordan, three on each side, where if it was an accident, if you could make it to the city of refuge before the avenger got you, it was a foot race, then you had an opportunity for mercy. Now, if the avenger of blood got you first, well, tough luck, buddy, you're dead. But if you could make it to the city of refuge, then something very interesting happened. Once you got into the city, the avenger of blood would show up and the entire city would bring you outside of the city and conduct a trial right there. And through that trial, if they ruled that it was on purpose, they just turned you over to the avenger of blood right there and you got executed on the spot. But if they figured out that it was an accident, I was working on the third story, I had a hammer, it wasn't secured on my hip belt, hammer fell off, fell down, hit my neighbor, killed him, it was totally an accident. I beat his son to this place, son didn't kill me in time, I made it here to the city of refuge. What happens then? Well, in that situation, the the person who committed manslaughter, the, the person who killed them but not on purpose, would have the opportunity to live in peace, in quiet, in that city, and only in that city. They couldn't leave. They couldn't go on vacation. They couldn't find another place that they wanted to move to. They had to stay within the city of refuge and could reside there under the mercy of God as a place of safety. Now, if they left, they they could get killed again, but that was their place of safety. And in fact, actually, they could reside in that place of safety until the high priest died. And when the high priest died, they were free. And we think, oh, well, that's neat. But no, actually, that's actually the most important part of the entire story. Is what this was doing is this was already instructing Israel very clearly and very pointedly that When death enters into the equation, when death is deserved, death is paid. And there's only two categories for who can pay for that death. Either you or the high priest. Those are the two categories. So they have case law right at the end of the book of Numbers, right as they get ready to enter into the promised land, reminding, teaching them, instructing them, creating these categories in their mind that when death is deserved for sin, somebody has to die, and there's only two categories. 
It's either the person who did it or it's the high priest in their place. That's it. Now, the interesting thing is is that once the high priest died, that person was forgiven. Their sin was no more. So let's say, this is the most amazing thing, let's say they live just outside the city of refuge. And again, it's the illustration I gave. They're working up on the roof. They don't have their hammer secured. It falls off the roof and kills their next-door neighbor. They go hoofing it back into the city of refuge. The town pulls them out to conduct the trial, and right in the middle of the trial, the high priest dies. Guess what? That guy goes free. Sin forgiven. Record clean. Restored into the good graces of God and his people. You see, this is what's categorically being taught to the people of God. Is that You have these two categories. You either die for your own sins or the high priest dies for you. But after that death, it's all solved. Now, hopefully, you've figured out where the sermon is headed in a little bit, don't you? Those categories would then be picked up in the New Testament, wouldn't they? Certainly still gradations of sin. Any of them will send you to hell, but certainly difference in in heinousness, difference in, in how bad they are. But categorically being instructed for the people of God, every sin deserves death. Every sin deserves death. We learn that in Genesis 3 when death is introduced in the fall. And the two categories remain the same. You can die for your sins or the high priest will die for you. And those are the only two options. You die for yours or the great high priest dies in your place. Now, it's a bit of a problem for us now because there is no high priest that we would look at as an earthly man that lives and offers sacrifices in the same way. And the reason for that, Hebrews makes this very clear. Jesus is that great high priest that has once for all satisfied sin. So that justice is satisfied by God. Justice is satisfied by God. If you were to turn over to Romans 3 real quick, this is, I think, one of those passages that you hear read, and a lot of times I think people don't pay fully close attention to what God means by this. Um, I think many Americans, we're not trained to read very well, and so some verses get a little bit big for us. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All sinned, all deserve that death, all are murderers in some sense, all deserve the consequences of sin. However, Jesus is the payment instead. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. Now, this is the key right here. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God himself might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
He's both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, meaning he's just, he doesn't ignore any sin. He he doesn't turn a blind eye to any sin. Numbers 35 deals with one specific sin, killing a person. And he says, is there any circumstance where that's ignored? No. If you did it on purpose, you die for it. If you did it on accident, somebody else dies for it. But it requires death. He, He never ignores it. But Numbers 35 is only dealing with one sin. There's like a billion different ways that we've invented sin since then, isn't there? And each one of those is a sin that requires death. For the wages of sin is death. And so God is just. He can't just ignore our sin. He can't just turn a blind eye to it because he is just. It's his nature. He can't stop being it. He can stop being just in the same way I could stop being human and be an eggplant. The second I stopped being a human and became an eggplant, I'd stop being me. I'd be an eggplant. The second he stopped being just, he'd stop being God. So he's just, he has to punish sin. But he's the justifier of his people, meaning he, he provides a legal arrangement When he deals with our sin, it's not just him like kind of brushing it under the rug. It's not him being like, well, I hope the angels don't notice. That person's pretty bad, but mm, all right. He's not ignoring it. He's providing a legally binding arrangement where we can say, my sin is paid for. You can't hold it accountable. You can't hold me accountable for it anymore. It's paid for. I'm forgiven. It's not, I might be forgiven. It's not, I hope I'm forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. That definitively is true for the people of God that we are indeed forgiven. Legally, fully, completely. So much so that when the high priest dies, the guy who killed walks free. Goes home back to his land, goes back to his inheritance, goes back to working his fields, goes back to his family. And it actually specifically notes that, that he goes back to his land, he goes back to his inheritance. That's significant because of how the inheritance functioned for the people of God. It was the mark of God's blessing and the mark of God's presence. So the sinner, when the high priest died, returned to the blessing of God. They returned to good standing with God. They returned to favor with God. They returned to the fullness of all of his provision and all of his blessing. In fact, chapter 36 is that's why it's so important. Is it a continuation of this dealing with the inheritance That it shows God's heart for his people is that his inheritance for them, his blessing for them, his gift to them is guaranteed and you deserve it as God's people. Not because you're righteous, but because he is righteous. 
Here is the finish of the daughters of Zelophehad who've been like, hey, what do we do if uh, there's no male heirs? How do, we, how, how do we get our inheritance? How do we get our share of the land if there's no male heirs? And earlier the Lord had said, well, it stays with you then. And now there's an issue of, okay, now what happens when we get married? <laughs> what do we do? And it's like, we'll marry within the family because the inheritance is yours. It's, it, it, it is yours. It belongs to you. Because the Lord blesses his people and cares for them and watches over them and redeems them. The high priest forgives sin. Now, what do we do with this? I mean, how do you put a passage like this into practice in a church like this? I mean, we're removed by several thousand years, we're not Israel. We're not governed by the Mosaic law in the same way when it's ceremonial or civil. What what, what do we do with a passage like this? Well, I, I would maybe just make a couple of brief points of application. One is to gently and lovingly exterminate the idea that all sins are equal. All sins will send you to hell, and they'll all do a good job of it. It doesn't matter what car hits you when you're walking across the street. It'll do just as good a job to send you to glory. But when it comes to have a conversation about the heinousness of sin, they're not all equal. Some are worse than others. And interestingly, the Bible is what tells us what's worse and what's not. There are some that we might think are really big deals that God doesn't think are quite as big of a deal. And there are some that we would think are, yeah, that's kind of odd. And he makes a really big deal out of it. Give up that idea. Be informed by the Bible. Two, I would say it's important that we make a big deal out of the high priest of King Jesus. You know, the reality of the matter is that's what it means to be a Christian. That what it means to be a part of the Christian church is that we are those that belong to Christ. But friends, it's so easy for us to lose track, to lose focus, to lose that kind of laser point focus on Jesus as the all-consuming reason for our lives. You know, the reality of the matter is um, this church, by God's mercy, has grown. But as we've grown, we've also grown with hurt and heartache along the way. And that's okay. That's not a bad thing. The danger, however, is that we either get captivated by the growth or we get captivated by the pain instead of being captivated by Jesus. Being captivated by the truth of the gospel that we all deserve that judgment, that we all deserve uh, the eternal punishment of God for we have all sinned against God in thought, in word, and in deed. Our name should be in the list of the guilty. but Christ and Christ alone forgives sin. And friends, I, I'm going to gently challenge and gently push. Some of us in here need to kind of step back and have a conversation with ourselves. Because while we might at one point in our life have said that was the most important thing to us, it hasn't been that way for quite a while. 
Some of us in here, the the reality that Jesus forgives sins has been pushed second or third or fourth or fifth down the list. Where maybe good and noble things have, have, have moved above parenting, school, job, sickness, how easy it is for those things to move up in the list above the Lord Jesus in our lives and friends. That's sin. It's sin to love family more than to love Jesus. To hate pain more than to love Jesus. To be preoccupied more than to love Jesus. And lastly, I might, application-wise, kind of challenge us to think about these cities of refuge, I think, are perhaps the most clear portrait of what the church is supposed to be in the entirety of the Old Testament. It's a place where guilty people could come and be forgiven by the blood of the high priest. That's what Christ Ridge has to be. This has to be the place where we collect humans from all over. Anyone we can find, we collect them and bring them in as much as we can so that together we would be covered by the blood of the high priest. Now, is is that a, a neat and tidy experience? No. In fact, actually, I mean, if you think about it, in the situation listed here, the guy flees to the city of refuge and then the entire town is taken outside to try him to know his business. The whole town has to know his story. And then once he's pronounced as an accidental killer, he's brought back into the town where he gets to live there as long as the high priest lives. What if your high priest has the same genes as Queen Elizabeth? He lives forever, it seems like. And so you have this guy who is functionally an accidental murderer in your group, and he, he lives in the town peaceably forever and ever. That's messy. That'll be hard. It's going to require some awkward conversations. It's going to require a little bit of conflict that has to be dealt with. But it's good. Friends, that's, I think, really the portrait that the session here longs for us to be. A place where the broken can come in and live under the blood of Jesus. Now, there are a lot of other benefits of being a part of a church and being a part of a church like this one, and I I could count them. Well, I couldn't. There are too many. But this has to be right there at the top of the list that we are the people of God covered by the blood of the high priest. And our job is to live together, encouraging others, bringing them in, dragging them in, that they too would be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, will it be perfect? Not yet. Not until we get to the life to come. Not until we get to live in the new earth. Will we make mistakes? Yeah, will there be hurt feelings? Yeah, and that's that's okay. It's all okay. We can sort it out together. Covered by the blood of the Lamb.
Might it be that that would be our focus? That would be our consuming passion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cities of refuge. And we pray, O oh God, that you would make this portion of your church look more like that. A place where sinners would find the mercy of God. Give us skills to show grace to one another and patience and hope for Christ's sake. Amen.